Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it will be page 400 on that red Bible. Uh, One study that we did not mention is that there is also a woman's study uh, covering the second half of Matthew that's also starting the week after 4th of July on Monday nights. And so if you're interested in that, uh, just write something on the the connection card or on the summer study sign up. That's on Monday nights, a woman's study, uh, the second half of the Gospel of Matthew. Sunday, December 7th. 1941 has been described as a day that will live in infamy. On that day, Pearl Harbor was attacked by Japanese forces. 20 American naval vessels, including eight battleships and over 300 airplanes, were destroyed. In addition, sadly, 2,400 Americans died and over 1,000 were wounded. What made the Japanese so successful in their attack was that it was a surprise. The U.S. was not at war yet, technically, and they did not think Hawaii was a major target on the Japanese radar. The Japanese stealthy schemes contributed to this surprise. They had a spy inside the American forces who informed Japan that if they came from the north, there would be no airplanes, American air resistance in that area. They also told them that if you attacked on a Sunday morning, people would not be ready for it. There were servicemen that were in their pajamas, people in the mess hall eating breakfast. During the attack, the Japanese commander flew over Pearl Harbor and called out those famous words, Torah, 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 which means tiger, tiger, tiger. And it was a message to the entire Japanese Navy telling them that they had caught the Americans totally by surprise. It's been said that the greatest advantage one has in war is the element of surprise. And the Japanese capitalized on that in 1941. So Christian, would you be surprised to know that you are at war, that you are a target of attack, that you are not in a playground but on a battlefield? When you become a Christian, you enter into a battle, a war against Satan and his minions of evil. Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over their present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
1 Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Timothy 6 says, fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, some of the last words Paul ever penned, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Why does Paul call us to fight the good fight? Because we are in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and the evil forces. In a movie called The Usual Suspect, there was a quote that I think is so uh, true. It says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off was convincing the world he didn't exist. When you wake in the morning, do you wake knowing that you are in a battle? Our enemy is stealthy. He flies under the radar. But make no mistake, he is prowling, looking to disrupt the plan of God and devour the people of God. And this is nothing new. He is our ancient enemy. As Pastor Jonathan said earlier, as we sang about it, he is our ancient foe. From Genesis chapter 3, we read about him, and he seeks to destroy. We'll see this in Nehemiah chapter 4. The people of Nehemiah 4 have the same enemy that we have today. The people of God are rebuilding the city of God for the glory of God and for the enjoyment of God, and Satan does not like this. And so he goes on the offensive, not by appearing as a dragon or with pointy horns and a pitchfork, but in stealth through the human rulers surrounding Jerusalem, men like Sembalah and Tobiah and others. And so that's what we are going to be looking at today. So let's read together. You can follow along in your Bibles. I will read all of chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sembalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones so that, at that, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they, are, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone walls. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God 
and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from the, all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest places of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spear, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that, they may be a, that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brother, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right side. Let's pray. God, I come to you confessing my own unawareness of the spiritual battle that wages I am forgetful, and so I am slothful in fighting. God, pray that for any who would echo that prayer this morning, that you would remind us of the battle that you have called us to, the battle that we are in, and the hope that we have that you are with us in the midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been asking you this basic question, which is where are you rebuilding the kingdom of God? Where has God called you to restore the brokenness of this world? What part of the wall has God called you to, to, to rebuild, to repair? If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about majoring in one area and minoring in other areas. As I thought more about it, I think we actually have two areas that we have to major in. We have to double major. 
to an extent. We have both an internal battle and an external battle that we are called to. The internal battle is the battle against sin, against selfish behaviors, against, against corrupt attitudes and passions. All of us have this battle that is waging within us in which we are fighting for the, 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 the presence of God and the dominion of God to extend its territory in our heart. And so that is one battle front, an internal battle, but there is also the external battle. We are battling against the brokenness in this world, whether it be in our family, in our community, in our marriage, or in our world. These two battles are waging at all times, and we are called to fight the good fight. We are called to extend the kingdom of God in our hearts and in our world. And when we fight that fight, when we seek to extend the glory of the redemption of Christ, Satan will most certainly attack because he does not like losing territory. It's once been said, if you are being shot at, you know you are flying over the right target. If you are seeking to be a part of God's redemption of the world, one way you will know that is that the enemy is attacking. His tactics may be subtle, it may be disguised, but make no mistake, this ancient foe is still at work, and the more aware we are of Satan's stealthy schemes, the greater our ability and quicker our response time will be to deploy divine defenses given to us by God. And so that's what I want to look at today. Really just two things with several subpoints, but Satan's stealthy schemes and the divine defenses that God has given to us to deploy against Satan's schemes. Again, it is important to know the schemes of Satan so we can identify him as the true enemy instead of the human agents which unwittingly carry out his schemes, but also so that we can respond with appropriate countermeasures. In Nehemiah 4, the first stealthy scheme we see that Satan uses is external opposition. Look in verse 1 with me again. The author writes, now when Sembalot, he's the ruler of Samaria just north of Jerusalem, heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He mocked them. Later it's called taunting. Verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Sanballat ridicules the Jews, no doubt, to discourage them in the task that God has put in front of them. He calls them feeble. He says they're weaklings. How could they possibly move the stones around to rebuild this wall? They don't have enough people to do this. He asks, will they sacrifice? There's a lot of debate on what he means by this, but I think he's saying, are they really unselfish enough to sacrifice their time and their talent and their treasure to rebuild this wall? That's why I think he says, will they finish up in a day? Do they really have the fortitude to do this? And then he says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? He's trying to say, the problem is too big. The catastrophe is too bad. There is no way you can rebuild this wall. Then Tobiah chips in, the other encourager. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. 
He was ruler of Ammonites, which were just east of Jerusalem. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Basically saying, you know what, they may build a wall, but it's going to be so feeble, so weak, a, a little fox could go, on it, go up on it, and it would all break apart. You know, we can see how hurtful these words are by the way Nehemiah responds and how the people of God respond. Verse 4, he's crying out to God. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builder. Nehemiah is praying that they would receive the very thing that they are plotting upon God's people. You know, all of us are familiar with the saying that sticks and stones won't break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I think all of us are wise enough to know that that saying is completely untrue. The book of James tells us that, that the tongue is like a single spark that can light a forest ablaze or a rudder on a ship that is so powerful that it can change the course of the ship. The people of God are still mocked today. You know, when I ask people, what do you believe about God? Where do you think the world came from? Many people will say, well, I'm more logical in my bent. I believe more in science than I do in God. So I kind of go that direction. I mean, this is basically what's being proclaimed at many high schools and many universities, that people who are highly educated would not believe in a God, but that they would submit themselves to science instead. Somehow they try to pit science against God as if they were opposed to one another. This is one of Satan's stealthy schemes. It's brilliant, isn't it? Convincing people that science and God are incompatible. As if God is only for the uneducated, simple, gullible, unscientific people. Christians, we have nothing to be afraid of with science because science testifies to the existence and the glory of God. I will tell you that in my weak moments, when I question, God, do you really exist? Do you know how I undermine my faith? Do you, do you, sorry, support my faith is probably a better word. It's by science. Because when you dig into science, it testifies to the reality of God. Let's just take the science of anatomy for a second. The body has a chemical plant far more intricate than the chemical plants man has built. The body takes food that we eat, apples and bananas and maybe even Cheetos, I don't know for sure. But it transforms it to make our flesh grow, to give us blood, to give us bones, to make our teeth grow. It even repairs the body when it is damaged and changes food into energy for work and for play. Or take the brain, for example. It is the center of the complex of, of an elaborate computer system within our body, one that no one could possibly duplicate. It computes and sends through the body billions of bits of information that control every single thing that is going on in your body. Even at this moment, even your breathing, even your heart beating, even your eyelashes blinking, it is controlling all of those things. I mean, have you ever thought how Amazing it is that the human body, the brain and the hands and the eyes can work together to hit an 80 mile per hour curveball. That is mind blowing, isn't it? It's, it's mind blowing. Steve Jobs can do nothing like that. 
He can't create a computer. I think they just created a robot that can now go up steps. Wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Can't hit a curveball. Can't even come close to hitting a curveball. Now tell me, what takes more faith? To believe that, that this amazing body came about from goo through a bunch of elaborate coincidences? Or that there was a divine designer behind it? Everybody believes that a painting has a painter. Everybody believes a building has a builder. Why would we not think creation has a creator? It's far more sophisticated. You see, I think everyone has faith, and I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. I am a man of little faith, and so when I look at science, I believe that there is a God because the design communicates that. As we continue this chapter, we see the external opposition is not only verbal, but it is also physical. Verse 7 we read, but when Senbalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And then skip down to verse 11. It says, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come against them and kill them and stop the work. I know we don't think about this much today in America, but the physical opposition against Christianity is greater today than ever before. Some of you know Sunil, our friend back there. He gave me permission to share, but the reason why Sunil is here as a student is because he went home to Pakistan to be with his family, and he was planning on staying there and working in the community. He had a job. But when he arrived back, he found out that the police were, were arresting all of the young Christian men in his community. And so he hid in his house for three months, trying to stay away from them. Finally, he went to his job. And when he went to his job, the police came to arrest him, to throw him in jail until he converted to something other than Christianity, to, his, to, their, to their tribal religion. And so he had to be fired. So he was fired from his job because the boss didn't want the police coming to the workplace every day. And so he had to come back to America away from his family because of the persecution against the church. I don't know if you knew this, but in the 20th century, more Christians were killed than in the first 19 centuries combined. And so you see the schemes of Satan all over the place. They are stealthy, bringing external opposition through human agents by pressuring God's people both verbally and physically. The second stealthy scheme of Satan highlighted in this chapter is internal discouragement. Look in verse 10 with me. It says, in Judah it was said, and you'll see it's in quotes, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There is too much trouble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The reasons why it's in quotes is because the way that this is composed in the Hebrew language is it's almost a jingle of sorts, kind of like the song, you know, it's a hard knock life for us, kind of like that. And so the people are chanting this to themselves and to one another. Our, our strength is failing us. There's too much damage. We can never rebuild the walls. You see, sometimes the mocking does not come from voices out there, but the voices in here. Voices that say, you think you can conquer that sin? 
Come on, look at you. You're a failure. You're pathetic. You've tried for years. You've had no progress. How could you expect to be victorious now? Or you're going to try that for God? Seriously, look at your room resume. What makes you think you can do something that big for God? These are internal discouragements. They are lies spoken by Satan that weave into our soul and preach to us in the midst of battling for God. You know, I was talking to a young pastor and he was confiding in me one time that he was going through a season where he was really considering uh, uh, leaving vocational ministry, quitting vocational ministry. And he asked me, he said, Dan, do you ever consider quitting vocational ministry? I said, sure, I call it Saturdays, right? Like that's the day, that's the day for me. Every Saturday, I wanna quit my job every Saturday. That may be an overstatement, not by much. I mean, Trish has kind of learned on Saturdays, don't ask Dan, how's the sermon going? Because she knows what she'll get is just a, a, a mouth of discouragement of, oh, it stinks, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Like, it's horrible. Why don't you go preach tomorrow? So she doesn't ask anymore, which is probably wise. But there is discouragement whenever you're trying to do the work of God. I don't, I don't say this to, to get empathy or anything. I say this because we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised by discouragement when we are carrying out the plan of God, the calling of God in our life. That is internal discouragement from inside our own head, but it also comes from within our community of believers. Look at verse 12. It says, At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, Not once, not twice, not three times. They said to us 10 times, you must return to us. If you remember, men and women from the surrounding community had come to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and from Jericho and other places. And the people back home had heard how dangerous it was, how they were now carrying swords and how how bad the wreckage was, how bad the, the rubble was. And so they're saying, listen, just abandon the project. Just give up, just come home. They are discouraging their own people. Discouragement can come from inside the walls of the church as well. You know, I think as parents, as our children grow, there is a great temptation to hold on to their ankles, to not let them go where God is calling them to go. I mean, if you talk with parents who who are sending their children overseas to do long-term missions, it is difficult. It is hard to let our children go, especially if they're going to a territory that is dangerous, and especially if they have our grandkids. We have to be careful not to discourage the people of God from following the calling of God, to not say, you know what, you shouldn't go, just stay here, you can make more money, you can take care of your kids, you can live life happy, it's going to be okay. It is so tempting to do that for our own selfish motives, but our children are not our own. They belong to the Lord, and they must go where the Lord calls us with our encouragement. And so just to recap, when we set out to do the work of God, Satan goes to war. Not by, again, phenomenal signs like spinning heads and levitating bodies, but usually through stealthy schemes, unwitting human agents through external opposition, both verbal and physical, and through internal discouragement, both voices in our head and even in our own community that seek to discourage us. And so these are the 
stealthy schemes of Satan, how do we respond? By deploying divine defenses. God has provided things for us to counter Satan's schemes. This passage lists out four of them for us. Four weapons, four defenses given us by God. Four ways to carry out the plan of God and the purposes of God, even in the midst of being attacked by our enemy. The first is perseverance. I don't know if you remember the words of discouragement at the beginning, but you're feeble, you can't do this, your wall's going to fall apart. Just after that, Nehemiah cries out to God, and then we read this in verse 6. So we built a wall. (laughs) So we built a wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. In other words, they were determined to do the work. This, verse 515, we all return to the wall, each to his work. It goes down to verse 17, but I'm running out of time. But what we see here is that the work becomes tedious. The work productivity gets cut in half because they have a sword in one hand and a stone in the other hand. A great picture of the Christian life, to be on defense in one hand, but to be building God's kingdom with the other. This may seem unspiritual, but one of the ways that we fight against Satan's schemes is simply by keep on keeping on. To faithfully continue in the work God has called us to until he calls us elsewhere. To continue the work even when it is tedious, even when it is unproductive, even when it's not exciting. Did you hear that, millennials? Even when it's not exciting. To continue in the work that God has called you to. Satan does not want you to persevere. He wants you to quit. He wants you to get bored with it. He wants you to be discouraged. And so one weapon against that is a long obedience in the same direction. It's not always exciting, but this is how we defend against the schemes of Satan. The second is partnership. 16 says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Verse 22 says, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so you see this partnership where half of the crew is guarding against the enemy and the other half is doing the work. And I'm sure they rotated through, but whatever it was, they partnered together for it. We get down to verse 18. And it says, and each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah is saying, when one of us gets attacked, we must sound the horn, sound the trumpet, so that the community can come together and fight together. There is safety in numbers. Satan loves fiercely independent people. He loves fiercely independent Christians. Satan loves it when Christians isolate themselves from a community, from intimacy with other believers. Satan loves it. He, Satan loves, loves, loves it when you're too busy to go to church. He loves it. Satan loves it when you're too lazy to get involved. Satan loves it when you don't want to be part of a community group because you're picky, because it's not quite your people. Satan loves that. He delights in that. Because he can isolate you and attack you all day long. This is what lions do, right? They they, they look for the one that they can isolate and attack. 
Satan loves for you to be isolated so he can attack. The third thing, preparedness. Knowing that we are in a battle. Verse 18, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. You can imagine how tedious this would have been, building the wall with a sword on your side. But again, this is a picture of the Christian life, a sword in one hand and a stone in the other, building the kingdom of God. Verse 23, he goes on and says, So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. He's talking about when they were asleep at night. And each kept his weapon at his right hand. They were prepared for the battle. Again, 1 Peter 5, he says, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. We are prepared. The fourth is prayer. We look at this, and as they're mocking the people of God, verses 4 through 5, we hear Nehemiah cry out an imprecatory prayer. Lord, what they want to do to us, I pray that you will do to them. Carry out your justice. And then as we move on and we find out that they actually want to elevate the attack with physical violence, in verse 8 we read, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we pray to our God and sent a guard as protection against them day and night. The first response is prayer, but that's not the only response. They took up their weapons to defend themselves. You know, this summer I've been coaching my youngest son's soccer team, and my wife can testify that that coaching my youngest son's soccer team has exposed a hole in my holiness uh, a pretty big hole, to be honest with you. Uh, I get really frustrated because I feel like if I tell a kid something five times, he should get it, right? So I keep telling the kids, hey, don't kick the ball in front of our own net. Right? Don't kick the ball in front of our own net. Um, our net's that way. Kick it, kick it that way. Not in front of our own net. You know why? Because that's where they want the ball. And so let's not kick the ball in front of our own net. And yet, every game, what do we do? Boom, kick in front of our net, and they're like, thank you, boom, goal, right? You've been there. There's a hole in my holiness, big. If you are prone to quitting when the task gets tough, if you are fiercely independent and isolated, if you are unprepared for battle, thinking you will never be attacked, if you do not devote yourself to prayer, you are kicking the ball in front of your own net. You're putting it exactly where Satan wants it to be, that you can be isolated and he can attack you. God has given us these divine defenses to protect us against the schemes of Satan as we carry out the work of God. Let me end with this. My son's soccer team, the most extraordinarily sanctifying thing I've done this summer for sure. We are O in 12, whatever, how many games we play. We, we, we have lost every single game. And it is so painful to be their coach. Um, it is so painful to watch this happening. And to be honest with you, what I really want to do is I just want to get on the field. I just want to go in there and I want to show them how to kick the ball, how to score a goal, how to defend the ball, how to not kick it in front of my old goal. Sure, a few kids on their team might get hurt in the process, but at least we'll win a game, Right? Well, evidently, they frown upon that. Um, something about 
kicked out of the league, thrown in jail, stuff like that. I don't get it. You know, it is inappropriate for me to compete on behalf of my child's team, but it is perfectly acceptable for God. And that is our great hope in the battle. You see, some of the lies of Satan are half-truths. We cannot rebuild. We cannot restore. We do not have the strength. We do not have the power. And the task is too big. Those are true. But he always leaves this detail out. God is on your team. God has checked himself into the game. He is on your side. And the victory is assured. If you look here, it's all throughout Nehemiah. By the way, primary character in Nehemiah is God. Okay? But look here. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. And then here's that great word of hope. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah's ultimate hope was not that the people of God were good enough or strong enough or smart enough or determined enough but that God would fight with them and through them and for them against the schemes of Satan. And this is still our hope today. 1 John 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 2 Thessalonians 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Friends, we fight an invisible war, a spiritual war. And sometimes it is hard to remember and to believe that God is fighting for us. But if we need to be convinced of it, all we have to do is look to Christ. Because Christ entered the game. In the carnation, he came into the world to fight for us. And then he went to the cross to take on all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our shame, and to win the battle, to win the war, to die on the cross for us, but to raise on the third day victorious to claim his prize. Do you know what his prize was? It was you. It was me. Christ came to fight for his people, to enter the game, to assure victory. Christian, as you seek out the restoration of the kingdom of God, both in your own life and in this world, Satan is fighting against you with stealthy schemes of external opposition and internal discouragement. But do not lose heart. Do not give up. Fight the good fight. Persevere. Partner. Be prepared. Pray. Fight the good fight, knowing that you do not fight alone, that God fights with you, that he fights in you, and he fights for you. And that the victory is assured. Let's pray. God, make us battle ready. Make us people who are, who are so set on mortifying sin in our life and extending your kingdom of grace and redemption that we are a target for Satan. And that we would know that he is out after us, and that we would be watchful, and Lord Jesus, that we would guard against him 
that we would have a sword in one hand and a stone in the other to defend against the evil one and to build your kingdom. Give us the strength to do this because you are our only hope in the midst of the battle. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.